Well, good morning. Let's have a word of prayer real quick. Lord, we just uh, thank you this morning for the hope that we can sing about, uh, the hope that we're going to talk about this morning. It is um, all because of your work and your power in us uh, right now and the um, just act that you, that you accomplished on the cross of forgiving, of our, forgiving us our sins, for bearing our sin and, and taking our guilt away, Lord. We are so thankful for that. We're thankful for the new life that you've given us, and we're thankful, ultimately, Lord, for the hope that we have uh, just before us. I ask uh, that you would just uh, quicken my tongue, Lord, that I may speak your truths. Um, Lord, may it not be I speaking, but you, um, and uh, open up our hearts to receive your word, that it might be an encouragement for us to continue uh, to run the race with patience. Um, So... We love you. Just bless this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. That was a great song choice. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's our future hope that's waiting for us in heaven. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter 1, 13. And so like I said, we're going to be talking about looking forward to our future. The New Testament talks a lot about looking forward to our future. And of course, when I say that, I don't mean looking forward to, you know, retiring or looking forward to finally collecting your 401k, but I'm talking about your heavenly future, right? We have much to look forward to when Christ comes back, right, and raptures us and, and takes us to be with him, and the New Testament has much to say about us hoping in that day. One of the things I can remember about growing up and Uh, going throughout my elementary years especially, was that Fridays could not come soon enough, right? We all looked forward for Fridays. It did not take me very long as a kid uh, to discover how much I hated school. No no matter how beneficial they told me school would be and no matter how far in life school was supposed to get me, uh, I wasn't going to be convinced. (laughs) I I always hated school, and, and this hatred actually started when I was back in preschool, uh, believe it or not. Uh, As fun as they made preschool, I I think after my first or second day, I told mom, I don't like school. (laughs) Like, it's it's infringing on my freedom. And so I would go, you know, I would go through elementary school, and I remember distinctly every week, I was looking forward to Friday. And Friday could not come soon enough because, I mean, let's be honest, the possibilities of what could happen on a Friday afternoon were endless. Right? A friend could have me over, I could go to a friend's house, I could have a friend over to my house, it could be a birthday party, I mean, you never know, I could just go home and enjoy skateboarding. There's all kinds of stuff that I, I love to do on Fridays, and so my life as an elementary school student especially was spent looking forward to Fridays and, of course, escaping the bondage of school And in a strikingly similar way, Christians actually find ourselves in a very similar situation, right? We we find ourselves in a situation kind of of bondage. We find ourselves in a less than ideal situation, trapped in a world that is corrupted by sin. And so we too look forward to a day when we will escape the miseries of this present situation, right? We have a day that we look forward to as well, And to be honest, the longer I live on this earth and the the more time I spend here, the more I feel like I simply do not belong here, right? 
I, I feel like I, I kind of look at myself and I say, I'm not, not really from around here, am I? <laughs> right? I feel like a city boy in a small town diner. And, and the longer I live here, the more I see that there simply is not much here for me. And so if I'm depressing you guys, that's good because we're going we're gonna to talk about positive things this morning. Um, what, what we're going to do, um, it, it, I want to do two things this morning. I want to answer two questions. The first question is, what is the grace that we have to look forward to when Christ returns? What, what is it that we have that we can set our hope on when Christ returns? And then secondly, I want to answer another question. And the second question is, what does it look like for us to set our hope fully on this grace? So these are the, the two questions I want to ask. What grace is waiting for us and what does it mean to set our hope fully on this grace? And by looking at these things, I hope that you will be encouraged to continue waging war and fighting the good fight of the faith while you remain here on this earth. Um, oftentimes I've found that the reality that we are foreigners and that we are sojourners on this earth, it often leads people to a flawed mindset that says, I'm just going to huddle up here and survive this present world until Christ comes back. Right? You guys have probably experienced that. I'm just going to weather the storm and kind of survive here on this earth until Jesus comes back. And then, of course, we will have joy unspeakable. And so instead of being fruitful and laboring while they're here on this earth, they, they kind of just sit back and are idle. And that is a flawed mindset. I believe the proper response to our future hope and our future escape from this world is to wage war even more diligently. Right? And to fight the good fight of the faith even harder, knowing the hope that awaits you. So, this morning, let's read 1 Peter 1.13, and we will jump into our text. Just one verse, the Bible says this. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, this is our verse for this morning, and it comes in a progression of verses. Peter has already, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he has identified his recipients of this letter. He's identified them as sojourners and exiles, right? They are foreigners. He's, he's made that very clear. And in verses 3 through 6, or I believe 3 through 8, uh, we're actually going to see that Peter talks about the grace that is going to be coming to us. He, he, he elaborates a little bit on what it is exactly that a believer has, what, what it is they have to look forward to, and how glorious the grace is that is theirs. And then in verses 10 through 12, Peter talks about how privileged New Testament believers are to know what we do know about our future grace. <clears throat> what, what, what he says is, is that New Covenant believers, we now understand things and we now are grasping things that both the prophets of old couldn't understand and even the angels long to look into. Right? He, he, he even says the prophets of old, when they prophesied about the grace that would be ours, they were serving us, although they dem themselves did not fully understand what they were prophesying about. And so basically the case that Peter is building in 1 Peter chapter 1 is that we are a very privileged people, 
right? Uh, being on this side of the coming of, of Christ and, and being able to look back and understand the things that we understand through Christ, we are a very privileged group of people. And, and that's what Peter tells us. And then we get to our verse today, and Peter tells us to set our hope fully on this newly revealed and yet to come grace. Set our hope fully on the grace that will come to us. And and by the words of our, our verse today, we're reminded that one of the distinct marks of a Christian and one of the distinct marks of Christianity is that we live our present lives hoping in the future. That's what we do as believers, and from the beginning of the Bible all the way back in Genesis to the present day, people of faith live their lives looking forward to and hoping in the future. Consider Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. The Bible says, by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Well, why was he living as a sojourner? Verse 10 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even all the way back to Abraham, with uh, what we assume was very little revelation about our future, he was still looking forward, and his hope was still set on the eternal city, whose founder and builder was God. He did not count this earth as his home. And Abraham was not the only one. David, in the Psalms, calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner. Jesus, for the joy who was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And in Hebrews 11, it outright says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Right? People of faith have always lived in light of the future. And it's interesting, I remember I, I talked this last fall. I was talking to someone, and, and he seemed to be mad at Christians because our hope is not set on this earth. Right? He was kind of frustrated with it. And, and in his eyes, Christians should be actively trying to enforce justice on this earth and actively trying to solve big problems like world hunger and actively trying to bring world peace here on this earth. And he, he believed that Christians were way too eager and far too, uh, their, their minds were far too set on heaven in the future. Right? He thought we were supposed to be fi- like fixated on things on this earth right now, trying to fix the earth now. But what he did not understand is that these problems will never be fixed unless, as 1 Corinthians says, the perishable puts on the imperishable. Until this old world passes away and until the new world is made, and for this reason we both hope in the future and we try to convince other people to join us in our hope knowing that the gospel is the only remedy that can fix a broken world. And so we hope for the future and we try to convince others to hope with us and to also look forward to this same city that Abraham looked forward to. And so as people of faith, we wait eagerly for this day. And so speaking of this day, we need to answer our first question. 1 Peter 1.13, it again says, set your hope fully 
on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we first need to find out what is this grace that is going to be revealed when Jesus comes. What is this grace that will be brought about at the revelation of Christ? And according to 1 Peter, if we look a little bit earlier in the chapter, there are three things for us. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So there's three things here that we're going to see in 1 Peter 1 that are part of our hope. The first thing we find is that at the revelation of Christ, we will receive an inheritance that will not perish. We will receive an inheritance that will not perish. And Peter specifically uses three words. He says imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And the word progression that Peter uses actually goes from like good to better to best. If you look at it, the first word that we see is undefiled. Or, I'm sorry, uh, imperishable. Peter tells us our inheritance will be imperishable. And with this word, what Peter is guaranteeing is that nothing of your heavenly inheritance will suffer total ruin or destruction. Nothing of your heavenly inheritance will suffer total ruin of or destruction. It's kind of like, it would kind of be like a car you know, salesman, um, you know, or sorry, potential car buyer asking, how well does this car run? And you saying, well, this car's not going to explode, <laughs> right? I can guarantee you that. It's not going to completely blow up, right? I know it at least runs good enough that that's not going to happen. And so it's like with Peter, right, to say that our inheritance is imperishable, it's a great start, right? That means, okay, so our inheritance will not totally ever totally come to ruin. But then secondly, Peter tells us our inheritance will be undefiled. So we're getting better, right? It will be an undefiled inheritance. And by saying this, Peter guarantees that our inheritance will never be marred or polluted in any way, or you could say it will never be broken in any way, right? To be marred or polluted, although undesirable, it is still less severe than a total destruction, right? Total loss. I'd, I'd rather have a dent in my car or a scratch in my car or even a broken car than a completely total car that cannot run, right? And so, so Peter is working his way up. Now, now, you know, your inheritance will not only be, you know, guaranteed to not completely pass away, but it will be undefiled. And then Peter goes thirdly, and says it will also be unfading, kept in heaven for you, right? Unfading, kept in heaven for you. And what Peter, Peter's doing is he's taking it even a step further and saying that your heavenly inheritance, nothing of it will ever fade. And the word fade means to gradually grow faint, your heavenly inheritance will not gradually go faint even after being there for a thousand years and two thousand years and ten thousand years. There will be no signs of anything of your heavenly inheritance fading in the slightest. I remember in college I worked at Subway and uh, 
you know, I, I, was, I was living a pretty busy life, and so I would just toss my subway shirt in the back of my car. And after a while of doing this, it actually didn't take too long before my subway shirt started to fade. And uh, the, the brilliant subway green was starting to kind of fade a little bit. And it was noticeable. Like uh, other people, other employees would be wearing their shirts, and then I would be wearing mine, and it kind of had the whitish green tint. And uh, which actually, for me, it was like, you know, made me look like a veteran. I've worked at Subway for a long time, which everyone wants that, right? Everyone wants veteran status at Subway. But it faded, right? Things you leave in the sun, they fade, right? I, I had, a, had a, have a couch, uh, a leather couch that we had in Boise, and half of that leather couch was in the sunlight, and half of it wasn't. And so, of course, the leather on one side was a lighter brown, and the leather on the other side was a darker brown. And in heaven, despite your things being exposed to the full radiance of God's glory as sunlight, which is what Revelation said, despite this, nothing in heaven will fade in the slightest. What you have the first day of heaven will be exactly what you have of the same value 10,000 years later. And perhaps the most glorious part of all these things is that the joy this inheritance brings you will not fade either. The fullness of joy that begins when you enter heaven, it will never pass away. This is something we know nothing about. Everything here, all joy that we can experience on earth, it will fade. To this end, Matthew Henry, he says, uh, of our inheritance, he says, it fadeth not away, but always retains its vigor and beauty and remains immarcible ever entertaining and ever pleasing the saints who possess it without the least weariness or distaste. Your inheritance is imperishable. Secondly, what do we have to look forward to at the coming of Christ? Well, what we find is that at the revelation of Christ, there will be praise and glory and honor. 1 Peter 1.7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So according to Peter and according to other places in the New Testament, when Christ is revealed, there will be praise and glory and honor, and it will be as a result of your faith, your enduring faith, your faith that endured the trials of this earth. We know that one of the things that is necessary for believers is that we endure in our faith and continue in the teachings of Christ that we first received. Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. That is a necessary part of the walk of faith. And from the New Testament, we understand that saving faith is not just a one-time act of saying the sinner's prayer, but it is a belief that results in a lifestyle of submission to God, and that lifestyle endures to the end. And according to Peter, it is this enduring faith and the subsequent obedience of faith that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So we we oftentimes read about this praise that's going to happen when Jesus returns. It's going to be a massive moment of glory, that we are caught up into, but oftentimes I think about it, it's like, where's all the glory coming from? Where is it going? Who gets glory? Is it us? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Is it all of us? 
Where is, it, is it creation that's glorifying? What's happening? And we know two things for sure, more things for sure, but I'll give you two things. Number one, we know that Christ will certainly receive glory when he comes back. Right? Mike already talked about last week about the glory that the Lamb is already receiving because of his work on the cross. There is a song right now that is being sung, praises to the Lamb because of his work of redeeming us that he accomplished on the cross. And when he returns to finally execute his full deliverance of us from this world, we will glorify him. Right? We will shout with joy because our deliverance is complete. Peter actually says that when Christ returns in 1 Peter 5.8, says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, comfort, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So at the coming of Christ, we will glorify Jesus because he has rescued us from this situation. Right, from, our, from this earth that is corrupted and in bondage to sin, we will glorify him because he will save us, he will rescue us, and then he will comfort us. And we look forward to that. But at the same time, we actually will be recipients of praise and glory and honor as well. Romans 2, 9 and 10, it says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek, right? So those who have done good in this life, those who have come to the obedience of faith will receive glory and honor and peace, but those who have not, obviously they will receive what is due for their deeds as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, in the same way, says something very similar. It says, therefore, do not, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then what? Each one will receive his commendation from God. And it's very interesting, that word commendation, it actually means laud or praise. Right? When Christ returns, we who believe can expect a commendation from God. And this commendation is specifically for the good works that have been wrought in you through Jesus. Right? And we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the amazing thing about this moment when Christ returns. It's that, it's that we will receive commendation for the good things we have done in this life, but those good things were only made possible through Christ living in you. Right? We can only do good. Anything that is good within us is because of Christ living through us. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is therefore not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ephesians 2 tells us, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so because of the new creation that Christ has made you and because of the good works that Jesus has prepared for you to walk in, you will receive your commendation from God. It's quite an astounding privilege, right? Jesus saved you, he recreated you, he gave you good works to do, he lives through you to accomplish those good works, 
And then some way you will stand, someday you will stand before God and be commended for those good works Christ caused you to do. Right? And this is a glorious thing we get to look forward to. And Christ will receive all the more glory for it because it is he who caused us to do these things. Thirdly, at the revelation of Jesus, what do we have to look forward to? Well, it's a who. Uh, look, look again in verse 7. The Bible says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is only when Peter speaks of Christ that he brings in the words, joy inexpressible and filled with glory. It's only when Peter talks about seeing Christ revealed and laying eyes on the Lamb that he he begins talking about joy that is unspeakable. In verse 4, you can look in verse 4, and Peter says, we rejoice, right? We rejoice in uh, in our inheritance that is waiting for us. And it will certainly be wonderful indeed, but it is not until we find that Jesus is included in our inheritance that we see that Peter brings in the the language joy inexpressible and filled with glory, right? Jesus is, is the pinnacle of our inheritance. And it makes sense that Peter would be saying this with such excitement because Peter is the one in John 21 who stripped down when he was in the boat, when he saw Jesus, and dove in the water and swam all the way to the shore because he could not wait for the boat to get back to the shore. Right? Remember the joy that Peter had when he saw the risen Savior standing on the, on the shore. Right? Jesus is the focus of the inheritance. The disciples, when they were with Jesus at the Last Supper, when they found out that Jesus was leaving, how did they react? They were greatly distressed. Right? The tone of the upper room changed when Jesus says he was departing. He is our portion, and he is the joy of our inheritance. And without Christ, heaven basically becomes a vacant theme park. Right? He is the joy of our inheritance. I remember when I was younger, I would, I would often fantasize about the physical realities of what heaven might be like. Would we play golf? If so, would all of our shots be perfect? Will there be mountains in heaven and will I have good cardio so I can climb those mountains? Right? What, what will my mansion be like? I used to ask all these questions and start kind of uh, wrestling with and envisioning what the physical realities of heaven might be like. And these to me were the realities that I looked forward to. When I was a little kid, I looked forward to heaven because of the physical realities that I get to look forward to But as I've grown and been sanctified and as I've seen the Lord show patience with me in this life, and as I've grown to understand how deep my sin really was, how how depraved I actually was born and how patient Jesus has had to be with me, and then as I, I realize, okay, so I'm a sinner and Jesus still died for me despite my rottenness, 
I start to see that the main draw of heaven is that I get to be with him, right? He loved me despite my sin, and he forgave me despite my sin. And so that, to me, is the main draw of heaven. And so, as, I don't know, as we grow in the faith, we look at Moses getting to talk to God in the tent of meeting, and we say, man, I wish I could have been like Moses, right? Been there in the tent of meeting with them. And then, then we see that Moses spent 30 day, or 40 days on top of a mountain, right, covered in cloud and lightning and thunder and, fo- and spoke face to face with God. And we envy him. It's like, man, I cannot wait to, to be face to face with God. And then we read the gospels and read about how the disciples got to walk with Jesus and talk with him. And we get to see his personality come out and we get to see the patience he shows to sheep who are lost. And we start to say, man, what, would it, what would it, will it be like for me, right, when I get to walk with Jesus and when I get to look at his face and, and get to know his personality? And as we mature in Christ and begin to scratch the surface of his great love for us, he begins to be the focal point of our inheritance. And he truly begins to be the reason we feel joy inexpressible and full of glory because when he is revealed, we get to be with Christ. And so this is the hope that we get to look forward to, an inheritance, praise and glory and honor, being comforted by God, and then inheriting Christ himself and being with him. So this brings up our second question this morning, and that is, what does it look like to set our hope fully on this grace? What does it mean for us to set our hope fully on on this grace. When Peter tells us to set our hope fully on the future grace that will be revealed to us, he's telling us that all of our desire and all of our longing and all of our yearning needs to be oriented towards the second coming of Christ. Right? All of our hope, all of our joy, and and Peter's literally telling us we need to be on the edge of our seats, on the edge of our seats until Christ comes. We need to be eagerly waiting for him to be revealed. One commentator says, to to set your hope fully on the future grace that will be revealed to us is to hope perfectly or thoroughly for the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. It's to have a hope that is undivided and unwavering, that's fully intense always, waiting for the return of Christ. Paul describes it in Romans 8 as waiting eagerly. He says in Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Currently, creation in its miserable state, enslaved to corruption, it despises this state, right? And so even the creation is groaning and eagerly, just cannot wait for Christ to return. And then a couple verses down in Romans 8, Paul says the same thing about us. We, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. This is what it means for us to have a hope that is fully set on the future. It is to eagerly wait. Kind of reminds me, we've been dog-sitting while uh, my parents have been gone. Kind of reminds me of the way, you know, you can hold a treat, or in our dog's case, a peanut butter sandwich. You can hold a peanut butter sandwich up in front of a dog's nose and he will stare at that thing and just nothing is going to detract his attention from that 
peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> and, and they have kind of a one-track mind. It's like they're, they're not going anywhere until that's in their mouth, and they've eaten it. And that's kind of the same idea, an unwavering focus that is set on the return of Christ. But you'll notice in this passage, in 1 Peter 1.13, that there is effort involved in this. It does not come automatically. It does not always come naturally, and it apparently requires effort from our end to do this, what Peter's telling us to do, right? Because Peter tells us we must prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded as we set our hope. So this is something that we have to work to do. And the reality is that as, Christ, or as people, as humans, it is not always easy to hope in something that we cannot see, right? Paul tells us that the fact that our hope isn't seen actually makes it all the more sweet. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 25, he says, now a hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, so according to Paul, the fact that our hope is unseen makes it that much sweeter, right? That's probably why the, the New Testament compares our arrival to Christ as a wedding, right? We will be presented to God. It will be a new reality that we have not yet understood, just like a wedding, right? We celebrate that. But at the same time, the fact that we have not yet seen our inheritance and, and we have no idea what it looks like, it makes it difficult, for us to always hope in something we have not seen. Furthermore, it's not always easy to keep our hopes set on the future when there are trials that cloud our vision. Right? P Peter is writing to a group of people who are suffering. He says they are grieved by various trials. And it's not always easy to focus on the future when you are, when you are experiencing grief and the suffering that is in this present world. Right? There, there are so many different kinds of trials that we face. And sometimes they pull our gaze down from heaven and onto this earth. And furthermore, we have an enemy who is dangling a thousand charms in front of us as we try to look to heaven. Right? He wants nothing more than for one of these charms to leech our attention and distract us from sober-minded labor for the kingdom of God. Yet despite these things, right, Peter tells us you must do them, right? You, you must set your hope fully on the revelation of Christ. Do, do not let your hope become distracted or divided. And we must believe that if Peter commands us to do this, that it is possible, right? When Christ commands us to do something, he gives us and provides us the means to do it. And so I want to end this morning by giving you three practical things that I believe will help you as you set your hope on the future revelation of Christ. Number one, study the realities of heaven often. Right, study the realities of heaven often. Both first and second Corinthians, Paul tells us we will be given a new body. Right, you will be given a, a resurrection body and a body that is not subjected to sin. Here in Peter, we learn that we will have an inheritance that's unfading. Right? That's something that we can chew on and spend plenty of time pondering. In Revelation, like we said, when we get to heaven, there will be a wedding feast. Right? We will be presented to Christ and there will be celebration from multitudes. And we can read the Gospels and study the personality of God. Right? 
And all these things are part of our inheritance. We need to study the realities of heaven often. There are all sorts of things we get to look forward to in the future. And in order for us to set our hope fully on the future, like Peter talks about, we must be encountering these truths daily. We need to be reminding ourselves of our future realities daily. Right? And even diving into those truths to better understand them and wrestle with them and, and chew on them because the more immersed we are in the truth of our future the more, and the more convinced we are about the truth of our future with Christ, then the more we will hope in it. Right? And the more we will look forward to it. And on the flip side, when we quit reminding ourselves of our future hope, something else will take its place. Right? That always happens. You must daily be jumping into these truths and reminding yourself, this is my citizenship as a, as a Christian, and this is my future. My hope is not here. Secondly, learn to enjoy the first fruits of heaven now. Right? The Bible tells us that although we are not yet in heaven, although we have not yet, we're not yet in the fullness of God's presence, in the fullness of God's kingdom, the new creation has already begun, right? The, the first fruits are already here. It, it, there's a few things that this involves. The New Testament tells us we already have been given a new nature that has the ability to do what is right. The New Testament teaches us that you already get to enjoy the presence of God through his spirit. And even now, you can boldly approach the throne of grace, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is already sitting on his throne and he is already ruling and exercising his authority over this earth. And even now as we speak, speak right, he is bringing his enemies in subjection to himself. And th th these realities and because of these truths, there are privileges that you can enjoy even now as you sojourn in this world. Right? Already you're enjoying God's presence through his spirit within you. John 13 says that Jesus has made his home within you already through his spirit. Right? You can already come before God and enjoy access to him in prayer and know that God is hearing you and is listening to you and that a real person is on the other side of your prayers. Right? And you can already enjoy the benefits of having a new nature. Sin is no longer your master. You do not have to yield to sin and this slavery. So learn to enjoy the first fruits of heaven now and what is already here, and it will make you all the more eager for our future when the fullness of the new creation has come. And then lastly this morning, realize how bankrupt this earth is. Realize how bankrupt this earth is. Although, yes, the, the first fruits are here, and although the true light is already shining, as John says, we still groan because this creation is subject to futility. Right? First, Second Corinthians says, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Right. While we're here, we, we continue to see a place that is saturated with sin. We can, sit, we, we can drive down the road and look everywhere and see the decay that sin causes. And we can see the heartache and the pain that sin causes and its effects are everywhere. And as long as we see this, we groan 
But nevertheless, there are still many things that seemingly promise to satisfy, right? There are many things on this earth that would try to deceive us into thinking that we can find joy and fullness of joy here, right? Many, like I said, many charms, the evil one dangles in front of us that promise to be satisfying, and, and you will always find that these promises for satisfaction are a lie, right? I, I remember when I was in college, Right? I wasn't as good about, you know, kind of like what uh, Tom said earlier, right? It's like I, ha- I believed in Jesus, but I wasn't fully pursuing him. I was also pursuing other things. And I would chase this rabbit hole and not find satisfaction. I would, I would chase this hobby and not find satisfaction. I would chase maybe getting this kind of possession, and it would not satisfy. And the Lord, by his grace, has taught me that the things on this earth, no matter how many you get or what it is that you get or what goal you attain, it will leave you desiring more and it will leave you with less than fullness of joy. It leaves you with joy that is fading. And so we must understand the bankruptcy of this world so that we continue looking forward to the city whose founder and builder is God. This place is corrupt And it always lets us down. So to end, Hebrews 12 tells us this. It says, You have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and last but not least, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Right? This is the hope we look forward to. It is in heaven, and it is far more glorious. Right? It will be far more glorious to join the masses and to the innumerable, innumerable, uh, innumerable crowd of angels and people who have been redeemed by Christ. It will be far better to join them in praise and to live with Christ forever than to Try to find our hope here on this earth. So I challenge you this morning, set your hope fully on that grace that will be yours. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we just thank you so much for the promises of your word. Lord, we find it a struggle to place our hope in something that we do not see. It's not always easy for us. It's easy for us to lose track and to lose sight of Um, what you have promised and trade it for things on this earth. So Lord, I just ask that you would grant grace to us. Open up our eyes to understand your word and understand your promises and maybe begin to scratch the surface of what we have waiting for us. Lord, I ask that you would capture our hope, capture our affection so that we are fruitful as we tarry on this earth, Lord. Lord, just teach us quickly that the things on this earth, the pleasures on this earth are fleeting. And may we set our hope on our inheritance and our future with you. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.